The reading this morning will come from Colossians 2, verses 6 and 7. Here's the word of our God. Therefore, as you received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him, rooted and built up in him, and established in the faith, just as you were taught, abounding in thanksgiving. The word of our God. Let's pray. Holy Father, we come this morning to worship. You are certainly worthy to receive it. We praise you. We offer our prayers and confessions to you. But now we hear from you by the word that you have recorded and by your spirit as we prepare to partake of the table. We pray that you would open our minds and our hearts to the word that you've given us. May it not only instruct us, but may it prepare us that we may know how and that we may come in a manner that is honoring to you and beneficial to us. Lord, speak to us now, we pray in Christ. Amen. Our memories can be a powerful thing. Studies have shown that our memories can change how we live and act. I was intrigued by an article I read this summer, uh, July 2021 article from the digital magazine called Inverse, and the, the article was called The Power of Nostalgia. And in this article, I found these things to be of interest. First is according to a series of studies published in 2015, the issue of the Journal of Personality and Social Psychology, the feelings of nostalgia can increase our resilience and our positivity about the future. The article went on and said another study by the Journal of Consumer Research has confirmed that when you feel nostalgic, you make bigger purchasing decisions, spending more money while shopping, which is why many of the commercials that you see are taking you back into your childhood. Intrigued by the subject, I googled it and found this interesting from the uh, Neurology Live, which is, honest to full transparency, not something I read regularly. Um, but it was interesting because it's, they, they revealed this is what's going on within us when we have these thoughts uh, that uh, from our past. Nostalgic experiences stimulate metabolic activity and blood flow in several regions of the brain, particularly the frontal, limbic, paralimbic, and midbrain areas. People who listen to music that evokes nostalgia experience greater activity in the inferior frontal gyrus, substantia nigra, and the cerebellum, and the insula than they do when listening to music that does not include nostalgia. And so all of the fancy words, which I probably butchered, so apologies to those of you who are, uh, who are neurologists or, or uh, bio biologists. But there's something that is very real going on within us. It's not just, you know, it, it makes me feel good to think of that in the past, but something that's going on very real within us that, that is changing uh, our, our brains, our minds, our perspective. And then it changes the way that we not only feel uh, but that we act. Going back to the article that prompted this for me the, from the inverse, uh, they summarize it this way. Nostalgia is one of the self-regulatory tools 
that we use to remind ourselves that we matter. Our feelings are powerful, powerful things, our memories that shape us, that guide us, that direct us. They are important tools for our day-to-day living. The passage that I read this morning also implies and, and, and rests on the power of our memories. The, the passage is in itself pretty straightforward. As you received Christ Jesus as Lord, so walk in him, or as the NIV is a little more specific and you know, implying of the, uh, the implications here, very specifically says just as you received Christ Jesus as Lord, so you should live in him. And, and so the instruction is straightforward. It's, it's saying, here's how we're moving forward. Here's how we are to live our lives. We are to live our lives on the same foundation that we had when we first became believers. And the implication there, or the question that is begged is, okay, if we are to walk in the same way that we received Christ, well then how did we receive Christ? What, was, what, what were the means, what were the ways by, uh, what was going on when we received Jesus? The scripture teaches us that there are two things that are essential in the conversion of every man, woman, child when we come to faith in Christ. It is faith and repentance. The Puritan Thomas Watson, as I've said many, many times in Charlie has uh, spoofed and, uh, me and on that, and, uh, but it says that faith and repentance are the two wings by which we fly toward heaven. Another analogy is faith and repentance are the two sides of the coin of salvation, if salvation were a coin. You can't have one without the other. Faith and repentance are both essential to our coming to faith in Jesus Christ. Well, if those are the two things that were essential in our coming to faith in Jesus Christ, then the instruction here that the apostle has given us for the way that we are to live out our lives is by faith and repentance. Now, faith probably makes sense for many of us. We celebrate the faith. We talk about the faith. We live out the faith. We live in the faith, and faith makes... uh, But the idea of of repentance, for many, that doesn't make quite as much sense. Because for many of us, our, our natural instinct when we think of repentance is that it's something that we should probably avoid. I mean, you know, much like a, a supplemental insurance policy, it's good to have it when you need it, but you never really want to be in a position where you need it. I mean, when is it that you repent? You repent when you have sinned, right? And so we're not supposed to sin, don't sin, therefore we shouldn't repent. Uh, we shouldn't need to repent. And so the idea that this should be uh, a, a, an ongoing way that we live at least instinctively, is almost nonsensically sensible to us. But the reality is it is an essential for day-to-day living. The theologian Jack Miller uh, from a previous generation ago, he'd written this, repentance begins a conversion, but it does not stop there. It isn't penance, self-effort, or self-condemnation but it is an ongoing attitude for daily living in Christ. And he's not the only one that had that thought. Historically speaking, Martin Luther, as he nailed his theses to the door at Wittenberg on October 31st, back in the 16th century, 
the very first thesis that was on that list was this. When our Lord Jesus Christ said, repent, he willed that entire, the entire life of believers be one of repentance. So both of them are drawing from the scriptures, including the one that we have here, about the essential nature of our repentance. It's an attitude and an orientation, not only toward God, but toward God's ways. It's in recognition of our, ourselves, not only of our behavior, but of our own attitudes uh, toward God's ways. And a recognition that very often, even when we may be externally in obedience, inside we are chafing. We are like that child that uh, you hear about uh, in Sunday school who uh, got, got in trouble in Sunday school, went home, and his parents were going to discipline him. And so they, they told him that he needed to go sit in the corner, and he objected. He thought he was justified in whatever it was he was doing in Sunday school. And finally, the parents prevailed, and so he went and sat in the corner. But while he was sitting there in the corner in his timeout section, he says, I may be sitting here, but on the inside, I'm standing up. That is a lot of the times what we are like in relationship to God's law. Now, we know when we transgress it, and, and we know that itself requires confession and repentance and a reconciliation. But a lot of times we do what we are to do, but we may be chafing and standing in our own way on, on the inside. And whenever that is the case, it's an indication of sin that is within us. It just may not have manifested itself in our lives. And when there is sin within us, that sin needs to be confessed and needs to be repented of. Acknowledging that God is right, that we were wrong, turning from that to follow in his ways uh, and seeking God's grace. So repentance is an absolute essential for our day-to-day -day lives. But repentance never comes without faith, just as faith should never come without repentance. And so repentance is our response to God for not just what we've done, but really what we are and our own attitudes. But when we recognize that we have strayed, we recognize that we have rebelled, even if only internally, now we need hope, and that hope always comes from faith. But faith is not just this thing just uh, that, that you plug into. Faith always has an object. And the faith that we hear of through the Scriptures is always the objective life, the death, and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Our faith is in what Jesus has done on our behalf, that sets us free. And on that objective faith, there are implications that go along with that for those who believe. As we trust in Christ, we are told we are forgiven of our sins. As we have trusted in Christ, we are told that we are reconciled to the one God whom we have offended. When we have trusted in Christ, we are told that we are made new creation, and that God has begun a work in us that he will see through until we have reached the fullness of holiness, which is our desire. 
And so there's an objective faith in what Christ has done that bears fruit in our lives because the promise of God and the work of God, but those two things go together. The faith and repentance are to be daily aspects of our lives where we acknowledge and recognize our brokenness, our waywardness. We confess that, we turn from that, then we turn to the hope that is ours in God's gift. Where we come with faith and we hear of this great gift that God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. Whoever believes in him shall not perish, shall not be condemned, but have every lasting life. That beautiful picture of our faith and of our hope reminds us of the reason for which Jesus had to come. Because we are broken, because we have sin in our lives that would keep us estranged from God. And so therefore, the good news, the joy, the power of faith is only made clear when we also recognize we have need for repentance. The Apostle Paul here says that we are to live our lives out in the same way that we came, which is by faith and repentance. Each day, each moment, we are called to remember how we became children of the living God. We come to this table now this morning, and this table also asks us to remember. Because in 1 Corinthians, as the Apostle Paul is preparing the church there to come and partake of the table, not just the one day, but as a part of the regular practice, he goes back and recalls a specific night and a specific message delivered by our Lord Jesus Christ. He says, For I receive from the Lord what I also deliver to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed took bread. So he's looking back, he's remembering. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he also took the cup, and after supper he said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. And so this table that we come to is an invitation to remember. But it's also not only an invitation to remember what Christ has done. We're told also we are invited to participate, but we only participate when we come in faith and in repentance. See, we're told that we should not come to this table in an unworthy manner. An unworthy manner is not one who has sinned because the table was given for those who are sinners. It is a reminder of the sacrifice that the spotless lamb has offered once for all time. The sacrifice is offered for those who are in sin, for you and for me. To come in an unworthy manner is to be someone who doesn't remember, doesn't recognize our need of that gift. 
Not just at some time in the past, but even this very day, this very moment. And so this table that calls us to remember also calls us to repent. That when we come to this table, we recognize that this body was broken because that's what the payment for our sin requires. But he was broken in our place, which is what Jesus means. I did this for you, my body given for you. We're reminded as we come to this table that God had said long ago that our sin is so serious, even if it seems so insignificant to us, that there is no forgiveness of sin without the shedding of blood, meaning without the taking of life. It's a reminder that every sin, the wage for sin is death. But Jesus says, I've shed my blood for you. His blood was shed. That those who are marked by it, by believing, are passed over because he has given his life, his life's blood, in our place for us, that we may be set free. And so we come to this table, and as often as we do, we are called to remember remember what Christ has done, to remember why he has done it. And in our remembering, we are invited to both faith and repentance. This morning, I invite you to come and partake of this table, to believe every promise, and to know that his promises are great, and so that regardless of how great your sin is, his life, his death, his blood is greater and you who take this and believe, you are forgiven. You are reconciled. You are restored. But to come to this table in a worthy manner requires that we be a people that look and to recognize what is our sin. Whether they're actions that we have committed or attitudes that we harbor. And to repent of them and take them to the Lord even as we prepare to eat and to drink the body and blood of Christ. This table is for the broken, for the weak, for the wounded, for the fallen. This table is a demonstration of the fullness of the glory of God, for in this table is revealed the fullness of his grace. And so I invite you, if you are one who is trusting in Jesus Christ, to taste and to see that our God is good. To taste the freedom that was purchased by his body and blood because of his great love for you. If you are one who is trusting in Christ and you've made that faith known by believing, by, by belonging to any Bible-believing church in the world, you are a member of that church in good standing then we invite you to come to this table because this table doesn't belong to this church. It belongs to Christ Jesus. And he has a people from every tribe and tongue and nation, from every generation. And so we are not divided on denomination or church membership. We are united in the one God and the one faith that is, in our, is Jesus Christ. But we also give this warning. Don't come lightly. 
invite you to go before the Lord and pray as the psalmist did. Lord, search me and see if there's anything wrong, anything messed up. His words were any way of iniquity within me. And not to be afraid of doing that. Because that's necessary to lead to repentance. Which makes the power of our faith, the power of God's grace, all the more real to us. I'm going to ask that the elders will come forward while I'm praying. So it looks like we have Alan and Steve here. And then we'll come to the table. Our Father, as we come this morning, I pray that you would speak to us. The one who is wounded and feels worthless, may they know of their worth because of your love. The one who struggles in sin, and doesn't seem to be able to shake it, and maybe even has become hopeless because of it. May they know that your grace is sufficient, and that Christ has paid it all. For the one who is rejoicing because they know and they live in light of and in line with your grace, may they rejoice all the more and taste the love that you have ordained for them. May all who come be united in Christ. For it is in him that we are rooted. It's in him that we are built up. It's because of him that we are able to express all thankfulness. Our praise to you, our God, as we come to your table table set by the one in whom we pray, Christ Jesus, our Redeemer, our King.